You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Mr. Announcer. That was a wonderful intro yet again. Episode 20. It's a milestone. We've made it. 20 episodes. You know, that's, I think we're officially a pod, Jay. Yeah, we're no longer teenagers. We, we are officially a podcast. And 20 episodes, I was thinking today, is roughly five months worth of episodes. But, you know, we've taken a few weeks off here and there, yeah. and we've had some interview weeks. So um, we've been doing this quite a while now. We're like It's experts. unbelievable to think back. Don't, li- don't go back and listen to episode one. No one needs that. No, no one needs but we're that. happy it's to be here on episode 20. Uh, Riz, give us the title episode 20 because it's a good one. The title of episode 20 is I read it on Facebook, but really good. it's I like iPad read it yeah. as in the service, uh, the social media company read it. Provided by Serena Williams husband, but not for long because he's stepping down because someone of color and a woman should take his place. Exactly. So we took a week off if you guys didn't notice. And you know, it's weird whenever we take a week off. When I see you again, I, I feel like it's been months. So long. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Been, this is like a yeah. reunion. Like, I need to come with gifts and, like, Hallmark cards and stuff because yeah, I haven't seen ridiculous. you in so long. I know. Yeah, it, it, really, it really does feel that way. It feels weird. Um, so but much we, has happened. So much has happened because, again, it's all Trump's fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, we told America to calm down, and once right. again, you didn't listen to us. Right. In Trump's America, every day is a year. And so it's been like eight years since since we've talked to you guys. You know? <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. Welcome back to us. Welcome back to you. Yep. Here we are. Here we are. We got a very big episode because, of course, also the other repercussion of taking a week off is that um, we then have a lot to cover. Yes. Because a lot of stuff has happened. So, and thus uh, starts Riz's saying, let's move on because we have a lot to cover. We have a lot to cover. Let's get to <laughs> it. Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangouts. Kick it, Jay. When he growed up this tiny babe. Folks all call him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, so first off, we wanted to send our love and congratulations to Clay Cogman, the editor-in-chief of our forthcoming media venture and a frequent, we could say now, guest of the show. Indeed. And his beautiful wife, Ashley, on the birth of their new perfect daughter, Annabelle Jane. Mazel tov. Yep, she was born last weekend. This is number three for Clay and Ashley, so may God be with you because you're going to need it. You know, my wife and I have talked about, we have two kids and we've talked about having a third. And the thing about three that always is terrifying to me is that you have to buy a minivan, you know, at least when they're little. Oh, sure. Um, There's no choice. You 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 got to fit all those car seats in there. You can't have three car seats in an SUV. And here's the thing. I've given up cool in my life. Like, I, you know, I'm like five, per, but I have like 5% cool. Yeah, you've still retained left. some. I've yeah, retained uh-huh. like 5%. Once yeah. you get a minivan, I'm sorry to You're tell done. you, Clay, there's no cool left. There, You cannot <laughs> be cool in a minivan. There's no, I could still be cool in an SUV. That's Once true. you get a minivan, you have given up cool forever. 
But anyway, congratulations to Clay and Ashley. Doors, the doors, they slide open by themselves. They That's do. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess there, there, there are some <laughs> perks to the minivan. But yeah, anyway, uh, we love you guys. We yeah, will be having Clay back. We are launching the intermediary, our media project. Uh, by the end of the year, we have made a commitment to that. Yep. So um, yeah, stay tuned. Also, while we're in the congratulations mode, we wanted to congratulate our Los Angeles Dodgers, who are playing right now yeah. as we speak. Game two, they killed it in game one. Game two is on, and we care about saving the world so much that we're missing the game right now. We're going to have to That's true. That's see true. Just, just the highlights. Obviously, you're not a basketball fan, because I noticed that we're not, we're not uh, congratulating the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm a Clippers fan. There you go. So I'm cool with it. I'm yeah. just I'm just saying, you know, no basketball to be I'm seen. I'm not here. a huge basketball fan. I will admit it. Although it is not lost on me that if the Dodgers win, that would be great for LA. You know, LA be. needs sure. it. We, we, uh, we're in a downslope right now. LA needs some some love. You, I don't know if you heard, there's a pandemic going on. There is a pandemic going on. Yeah. For yeah. all the listeners out there who didn't know. <laughs> Jay, what do you got for us? Uh, we got a Discord. You guys have been so great. We've had new people coming onto the Discord. We're so thankful for that. We're getting to some questions today. We will get to your questions as they come in. So keep on hitting that Discord. Keep on sending us questions. We'll keep on answering them. And we're really enjoying that uh, interaction. We appreciate it. Uh, we got yes. products. We got t-shirts. We got mugs. We got all kinds of stuff. Baby onesies, masks. Yep. You might be sick of hearing it at this point. But if you don't buy anything, we're going to keep telling you about it. That's until true. you get so tired of hearing about it that you buy something. Buy a mask. You know, they're, they're, they're the great mask. You need a mask. Everyone should be wearing a mask. Why would you not want a down-the-middle mask? Go get one. Uh, indoctrinate your family and friends into moderate change done incrementally. It's yep. our messaging. It's right on there. Uh, don't be radical, people. We, we keep telling you to calm down. We mean it. Now tell all your friends, too. Speaking of which, we have baby onesies, and we just talked about Clay Cogman having oh, yeah. a, a, a okay. new baby. We well, need to. I know we, what we're I buying am, him. Yes, we are buying him a onesie. Clay, it's not going to be a surprise because we know you're going to be listening to the show. So uh, that's going to be your gift. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. Lastly, and we've been reminding you every week, and we will continue to remind you until election day. The first quadrennial down the middle live stream is Very coming exciting. to you on november 3rd it's gonna be fun but were you saying jay we might experiment with something uh tomorrow yeah so the debate's happening tomorrow night it happens to be uh your daughter's birthday it and so indeed. to celebrate i'm coming over we've all been tested it's gonna be safe we're gonna be socially distanced we're hanging yep. it's gonna be a good time and so we thought you know we'll see who's out there in the instaverse yeah and while the debate's going on you know everyone's hitting the mute button yeah. we'll uh we'll maybe we'll pop on to instagram live we'll be at down the middle podcast on instagram yeah check it out you know we'll say hi we'll take your questions for a little bit and maybe we'll talk about the debate yeah, so well, come see us know, it's also a kid's birthday so we probably won't get too political but uh but yeah yeah uh, well we might test it out we might not actually so yeah <laughs> don't hold us to it depends on who's crying and for how long Yes. So anyway, we have a lot to get to, don't we, Jay? So we certainly do. That is it for Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangout. Let's go into my favorite segment, your favorite segment, our longest running segment, We Care A Lot. We care a lot. Okay, we got a great question last week relating to foreign policy from a new person on our Discord, uh, Political Pisces. Why don't you read us the question, Jay? All right, this is a long one, so everyone kick back. Okay. Does the stance that Republicans will protect the U.S. from international threat better than Democrats 
hold any historical slash policy driven water. This is one of the top reasons I hear from the 60 ish year old generation for voting Republican in general and specifically for turning a blind eye to any of Trump's downfalls. I can't help but think part of this viewpoint stems from fear mongering and the stereotype of the bleeding heart liberal, but my flimsy at best grasp of history and politics leaves me wanting a more in-depth understanding of this viewpoint. Current example heard during a recent conversation. Obama's presidency and voting for Biden leaves this country more vulnerable to an undefined but evil international threat, be it China, Russia, Iran, etc., but Trump will stand up to these threats. All right. Okay, yeah. yeah I, I, pretty I good. like this a lot. This is a great yeah. question. So I'll start off here, Jay. Do you mind? Please do. So, uh, like I said last week, this is a topic that really deserves, at the very least, a topic of the day or perhaps even an entire episode. But given yeah. the fact that we are so close to this very historic election, the chances of going into this topic with the detail that it deserves before the election is dwindling with every passing week. So we are going to take on this topic today in this segment in a very broad manner and address some of the general concerns from this listener. First off, I'll say that it is true that the Republicans and the Democrats have historically different opinions on foreign policy. But I do believe that this is one of those issues where the end goal is generally the same for both parties. The end goal is obviously peace and prosperity around the world, but more specifically, the safety and economic security of Americans first. I do not believe, no matter how much Facebook memes I read, that (laughs) there are people in Congress on either side that want to hurt America or want us to be less safe, all right? It's just about different opinions on how you get there. So for all of Trump's rhetoric about America first and the railing against the so-called globalist elites, I do believe that both parties are primarily concerned with American prosperity and safety, you know, and simply have differences of opinion on what the best way is to get there. For me, I probably have a more conservative outlook on how foreign policy should be conducted than a lot of my liberal or leftist friends do. And a lot of this goes back to my feelings on Israel, which we'll get to. Uh, But this is another one of those issues where there is so much nuance involved, right, Jay? Yeah. So, for instance, there is certainly crossover between the sort of Bernie Sanders left and many of those on the right in regard to what we call isolationism. Uh, So the, the very general sort of definition of isolationism is the idea that, you know, why do we invest so much money in getting involved in conflicts around the world that aren't our conflicts? Why do we send our kids out to risk their lives in territories that don't on the surface appear to create a substantial benefit to America and the American public? If you remember a few months ago, we had uh, Paul Angelo on the show, who was a Bernie Sanders socialist, a a self-affirmed socialist, and his worldview overlaps significantly with that of, uh, you know, Republican senators like Rand Paul, the conservative from Kentucky, who shares in the sort of broad viewpoint that America's involvement in conflict all over the world has actually made us less safe because to put it again in very general terms, it has created, uh, I guess what you would call sort of a pervasive anti-American sentiment that permeates throughout the world. Now, there are Democratic representatives like Tulsi Gabbard and Republicans, like I just mentioned, like Rand Paul, who even say that our determination to involve ourselves with so-called regime changes around the world has been the root of what has caused events like 9-11 and an ever-growing hatred of the United States around the world. Then we have the Republican establishment, like the late John McCain, 
who actually shared a lot of the same foreign policy views as Hillary Clinton in that, you know, the American military is charged with policing the entire world because that is the very thing that keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. So you use the term bleeding heart liberal. The, the, our listener used the term bleeding heart liberal. But I think it's nowhere near as black and white as that. It can't be chalked up to the simple idea that Republicans are warmongers and Democrats are not. There have been many times when Republicans pan the Democratic president for getting involved in conflicts that Republicans didn't see as beneficial to the United States. Obama going into Libya is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, uh, Obama was excoriated by the right for pulling troops out of Iraq. And then Trump very much ran on the position of pulling troops out of Afghanistan. You know, as I've said before on the show, Jay, bringing our troops home is a very popular and politically expedient campaign for both parties to run on. No Americans want our men and women to be dying out there. So, you know, George W. Bush's decision, for instance, to ignite the war in Iraq is now very much panned by both sides of the political aisle. So all of this to say that there is really no way to sort of generalize how Democrats think about foreign policy versus how Republicans think about it. It changes over time. Both parties have been accused of being warmongering. Both parties have run on isolationism, and both parties have had changes in heart in regard to foreign policy decisions that were made at the time. But with that, let's go into a few foreign policy decisions where there were historic differences between how the Democrats and the Republicans wanted to engage. The first one that comes to mind, for me at least, is the war Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. Now, neither Jay or I were alive for this, but Jay, why don't you touch a little on how the opinions on Vietnam differed between the parties at the time? Sure. Uh, the Democrats, they, they had garnered at this time a reputation as a smart military party coming off of World War II. This decade began with JFK taking on Russia in the Cold War, followed the tradition of Woodrow Wilson and FDR before him, launching the U.S. onto the world stage as a mediator of conflict. Kennedy saw Vietnam as the place after the failure of the Bay of Pigs where he could create more credibility for America as a type of world police. When Johnson took over, he actually escalated the conflict, utilizing America as more of a police force following an attack on an American helicopter base. Now, there's no way to know, obviously, what Kennedy would have done as his military advisors, the same ones, led him into the Bay of Pigs to begin with. And again, these were the same people now advising Johnson. So once Johnson began his reelection campaign, we saw splintering within the party as Robert Kennedy entered the race with an anti-war sentiment, perhaps showing us what his brother might have done. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, who ended up as the nominee eventually, he pledged to stop the bombing in Vietnam, but was too late to voice these sentiments as Nixon edged out a victory, as we know. So it's interesting here to see that the Democratic Party, the party that entered us, actually entered us into the Vietnam War, was also the party that opposed it. It's not unlike the Tea Party versus classic Republicans, or what we see now on the left, the Bernie bros versus Biden supporters, uh, people like you, Riz, who are constitutionalist Democrats. Yeah. But things on the Republican side were different back then in both parties. Republicans in Congress were more likely than Democrats to support civil rights legislation, for mm-hmm. example. Attitudes towards or- uh, abortion and gay rights didn't divide the parties. Right. Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater, and William F. Buckley, all major Republicans, favored liberalizing abortion laws, actually, in the early 60s. And in 72, Democratic VP nominees Sergeant Shriver and Thomas Eagleton were anti-abortion. Right. And no mainstream contenders from either party supported gay rights. So the point is, is that the civil rights and 60s sexual revolution had people for and against on either side. It was a very interesting time. Yeah. And as the left began to implode, the right claimed the center. They became the party of simple military competence, patriotism, 
and national unity. Right. It's how Nixon won the election. And as far as the war is concerned, the right took the position that the left didn't know how to handle the war and were continuing to send America's children to die. Barry Goldwater, for example, advocated for allowing field commanders, you're not even going to believe this, to use tactical nuclear weapons without presidential authority. Yeah. They wanted complete and total victory and a pathway to win without dragging things on any longer because everyone was protesting how long this has been going on and how many people were dying. They weren't against the war necessarily, but the war gave them a claim in the election that they could do a much better job. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Yeah, so is there anything else you wanted to say on that before? I mean, generally, I, I think in terms of the, I, I think you touched on a lot here and mm -hmm. I think you made a very good point. Yeah. I do think making the distinction between Donald Trump and the Republican Party, for example, is very important uh, as Trump does not handle international threats like a typical Republican would. Uh, examples to note Russia, North Korea, I, th we should sort of exempt that from conversations and they should be separate. Right. So a great deal of this conversation depends on whether you consider military spending protection. Mm -hmm. If you consider policing the world protection, right. this I've found is less by party generally, as you said, and more by candidate in, in terms of foreign policy. On spending, there is typically a partisan divide. Yeah. But for example, like Trump and Obama have had actual similar goals here as Trump, he doesn't believe we should be fighting wars overseas. And Obama wanted us to disengage from our position as the world power. You know, there are, in, in, there are injustices in the world. There's the old adage, uh, perhaps you've heard it, with great power comes great responsibility. Right. Peter Parker. Yeah. Uh, that, that rings true here to me. I mean, as far as like where I fall as a conservative, mm -hmm. we're a powerful country, we're a free country. And as per usual, I'm going to insert a West Wing quote here. So get ready. Uh, the position I actually agree with is President Bartlett, a Democrat. And um, here's what he had to say about foreign policy. We're for freedom of speech everywhere. We're for freedom to worship everywhere. We're for freedom to learn for everybody. And because in our time you can build a bomb in your country and bring it to my country, what goes on in your country is very much my business. And so we are for freedom from tyranny everywhere. Whether in the guise of political oppression, Toby, or economic slavery, Josh, or religious fanaticism, CJ. That most fundamental idea cannot be met with merely our support. It has to be met with our strength. Diplomatically, economically, materially. And if Pharaoh still don't free the slaves, then he gets the plagues of my cavalry, whichever gets there first. So the one thing I would push back on, Jay, is, uh, you know, what you, when you said that Obama wanted us to disengage as being the world power, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think okay. he just had different, uh, a different uh, view of foreign policy. And we're going to get to Obama in a second, because I actually right. have a clip from him. You know, okay. before we get there, though, as I mm -hmm. mentioned before, Another historic foreign policy debate is over the war in Iraq. Now, yeah. at the time, the majority of Congress, including the Democrats, including the Democrats, were very supportive over the war in Iraq. But it has become a sort of third rail of foreign policy for both sides. Yeah. You know, we, we constantly hear the question, did you vote for the war in Iraq? It's a very important question politically nowadays. So if you paid attention to Trump, for instance, he has dishonestly claimed that he was very opposed to the war in Iraq because, again, according to polling, most Americans at this point say that going into Iraq was a bad idea. Now, of course, there is like audio of Trump saying he supported the war, but like so many other things with Trump, he takes the position of, you know, who are you going to believe, me or your lying ears? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, now Joe Biden voted to go into Iraq. So yeah. there was... So, so there was this this really great interview with Barack Obama uh, that he gave last week with the Pod Save America guys. And one day, 
the Down the Middle podcast squad will be big enough to get guys like Barack Obama on our show. We promise. Yeah, it was a great show. Okay, yeah. It was, yep. Yeah. Uh, and he, ta- you know, Barack Obama talked a little bit about Joe Biden and foreign policy. And rather than have me sum it up, here is what, what Obama had to say about Joe Biden, what he learned from the war in Iraq, and how he thinks about foreign policy. Obama, go. You mentioned Joe having, uh, you know, voted for the war in Iraq. He learned a lesson from that. And as you right, know, right. he was probably the person who was most restrained in terms of use of military force. Uh, among my senior advisors uh, during the course of my presidency. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he consistently believed that we should show restraint and humility and think through uh, the use of military power and had huge confidence and faith in the use of diplomacy as a strategy for uh, you know, showing American leadership. And that instinct, I think, is going to trickle on, partly because he's going to have to rebuild a State Department that where some of the best people have been driven out systematically because they weren't willing to uh, tow uh, Trump's ideological uh, agenda. Yeah. So, you know, going back to Obama, I don't think, Jay, that he was trying to disengage from the world. I think he saw foreign policy in a lot of the same ways he's talking about Obama seeing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, I think we can expect a Biden administration to look for more diplomatic solutions to foreign policy rather than military solutions. But again, that sort of falls in line with what a lot of Republicans have wanted for a long for time. For sure, and I'm, so, I'm not right. against that by any means. I think the right. diplomatic solutions, should ha- they have to be exhausted first. Because force is the last thing you want to do. But yeah. in certain circumstances, I think that it's our responsibility as a world power to utilize that force. And I think that's, that's my only issue with I think that Obama sort of did hold this back when necessary to threaten that force when needed in a diplomatic situation. Right, right. And I I agree with that. Um, But what I'm saying is that, you know, what are the Trump Republicans always saying they want to do? They want to end these endless wars. Very, very popular. Bring the troops home. Stop getting involved in external conflicts. Trump, you know, so what what I'm really getting at here is that the idea that we're going to be, quote, safer with a Republican president is perhaps contradicted by the foreign policy agenda of the Trump administration. You know, here's something. Check this out. Mm -hmm. Trump is the very first president of my lifetime. Think about this. The Mm -hmm. very first president of my lifetime who didn't engage in any new military campaigns. Not a single one. Therefore, my my lifetime. Right, exactly. So our listener who asked this question said specifically that his or, whole, or his or her older friends right. and relatives say Republicans will make us safer in regard to foreign policy. Well, if they're voting for Trump, safer to them must mean disengaging in external conflicts because that's what Trump has, at the very least, told us he wants to do. You know, by the way, while also, which is why I mentioned it earlier, while also spending more money on the military. Exactly. He's done both of these things. He's done both, right. Now, you know, one more thing I want to touch on here. You know, one of the main attack lines from the right towards Hillary Clinton in the last election cycle was that she was a warmonger. Mm -hmm. She was a part of the sort of John McCain, John Bolton industrial military complex and wanted to start start wars with 
everyone. You know, I, it was it was really at that point that I personally started hearing both the far left and the right use the term regime change wars. Mm-hmm. The idea being that we have we had focused so much of our military attention on deposing people we don't like throughout the world and then trying to replace them with people we do like. Yeah. Now, you know, that term regime change war is a Russian-backed narrative that is constantly being pushed out by the Kremlin because there is nothing that Russia wants more in the world than for us to retreat. They want to be the superpower overseeing the Middle East especially. So Mm -hmm. a lot of this Russian-backed narrative trickles down via propaganda that then starts to take hold on the American public and ordinary Americans start adopting these values. And the American right in particular has been very on board, at least in the Trump era, with the idea of retreating from conflicts around the world. Yeah, and that's not where I sit personally. I think we have a responsibility with the size of our country uh, and our military, we should be, I mean, as Bartlett said, we should be against injustice. We should be at least knocking on the door of the people who are creating problems for us, for the rest of the world. And, and by the way, that includes places like Russia. We're on the same page here. Absolutely. Yeah. So lastly, you know, one of the uh, 10,543 Democratic candidates <laughs> that we had in this election cycle yeah. was the representative from Hawaii, uh, Tulsi Gabbard who was uh, was uh, a service person as well. Yeah. Uh, she was really the one candidate that gained popularity on the political right. And uh, the, uh, the entire focus of her campaign was on ending these so-called regime change wars. So... Hillary Clinton was being interviewed. Uh, this was during the the primary season of of this latest election cycle, and uh, and she was being asked about the candidates, and she said something to the effect of, uh, "You know, I believe there is one candidate on the stage who is being groomed by Putin, and perhaps set up to be a third party spoiler candidate." Mm-hmm. Now. This didn't end up happening, of course. We know this now. But Tulsi Gabbard responded by saying the following: "Quote, great." Thank you, Hillary. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know it was always you through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate media and war machine afraid of the threat I pose. So, you know, after that, Tulsi Gabbard became uh, one of the only Democratic candidates to appear on Fox News nightly. Uh, So I'm making this point to once again highlight the fact that the idea that the Republicans are pro-war and the Democrats are anti-war is a false narrative when you consider the fact that one of the main attack lines from both the the right and the left on Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton was the idea that she was a warmonger. So, yeah. Jay, anything else to add on that? No, I completely agree. It's it's really more by candidate. And, and you know, whoever your old friends are that are talking to you about this political Pisces, tell yeah. them they need to they need a little little bit of history because this is incorrect. Yes, exactly. So, you know, moving on and, and we'll, we'll wrap this up as soon as we can here. But I want to talk briefly about more recent foreign policy disagreements mm-hmm. between the Republicans and the Democrats, because I think this will highlight more of the differences that are on the ground today. Right. So the big one that comes to mind first is the Iran nuclear deal. Of course. Now, if you follow politics and foreign policy in particular, you've probably heard of this arrangement that was brokered by the Obama administration. It was sharply panned by Republicans and by 
Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel at the time, and then it was dismantled by the Trump administration upon Trump taking office. I personally was very much on the fence about the deal when it was taking place, but I have slowly come to the realization that it wasn't a good deal to begin with. So very briefly, to catch you up if you're unaware of what the Iran nuclear deal was, the simple idea behind it was that Iran would redesign, convert, and reduce its nuclear facilities in exchange for all nuclear-related sanctions being removed on Iran, which would free up billions of dollars in oil revenue and frozen assets for them. So first, it is worth noting, and I think Jay agrees with me here, that the nation of Iran is the single greatest sponsor of terrorism in the world. They are not a friendly nation. Correct. They are a budding nuclear power, which threatens the world and immediately threatens the state of Israel, as the Iranian mullahs have openly called for the destruction of Israel. Now, what Obama's deal basically did was limit their ability to enrich uranium and pursue nuclear weapons for 10 years. Now, from the Obama administration's perspective, I think they thought that taking Iran off the nuclear scene for 10 years was a huge win for, any for the world. Mm-hmm. Right, for any amount of time, right? Yeah. But for 10, 10 years seems substantial, right? Mm-hmm. So the Obama administration also pushed out the narrative that Iran was sort of in the process of moderating and yeah. getting out of the extremism game. And so that that sort of justified the Iran deal even more. You know, the idea that if we hold them off for another 10 years, by then they'll be fully mo- they'll be a fully moderate nation. I mean, I also think that you had things like uh, there, there were regime changes, you know, happening via, tw- you know, social media at the time. The, the Middle East was in sort of a, a tumultuous time. And I think that trying to take advantage of uh, the messaging was a big part of this deal. Yeah, good point. Very good point. You know, the Republicans had a huge problem with this because, you know, one, 10 years is really not that long in terms of foreign policy conflicts. And, you know, a lot happens in 10 years and it moves pretty quickly. And two, the verification methods that were employed to ensure that Iran was meeting their end of the bargain Mm -hmm. were a little bit sketchy and loose. Thirdly, lifting sanctions on Iran and giving them access to billions of dollars would potentially make it easier and quicker for them to pursue nuclear weapons after the 10-year period was over. And here's the point. I think this is perhaps the biggest difference currently in how the Dems versus the Republicans approach foreign policy, especially in the Middle East. Now, I think the Democrats make the mistake, and, I, and I'm pretty sure Jay will agree with me on this one, too. I think the Democrats make the, the mistake of thinking that we can buy our way into peace, yeah. that if we concede a little bit here and give a little bit there, that these adversarial nations will eventually change their behavior. And I think that is generally how Democrats have approached the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well. You know, if Israel would just back off a little, if they'd just stop building settlements, if they'd stop being tough guys all the time, the situation will improve. Republicans, on the other hand, since Ronald Reagan, have endorsed the sort of Reaganistic idea of peace through strength. You hear that term a lot. The idea being that the United States and our allies don't give an inch but actually double down on our position and adversarial nations get nothing until they change their behavior. Yeah, the Demo- the Democrats clearly have not read if you give a mouse a cookie. Is what you're <laughs> right. <laughs> In other words, we don't come to them to negotiate. They have to come to us. Correct. And if I think there's one good thing that has come out of the Trump administration, it's the fact that at least in regard to the Middle East, the Republicans have been proven generally correct on this. Mm -hmm. The the recent deals that we talked about on this show with the UAE and moving the embassy to Jerusalem, 
Is the United States taking a strong stance on the idea that Israel ain't going anywhere? We're not going to give an inch. And, you know, at, at least while the surrounding nations are pursuing terror. And this strong stance has now brought a lot of the surrounding nations to the table. They want to stand with the U.S. and with Israel against Iran and against radical terror. So that has been a good thing. I mean, Jay, do you want to elaborate on this? On the Democratic side, as far as Middle East policy as it relates to Israel goes, uh, the party's a bit split on this issue. You know, they're, they're, they're split on a couple issues, a few issues these days. But this, this one in particular, there are the progressives like Ilhan Omar, like AOC, that believe that Israel is an occupier, a force that is holding land illegally. Biden, however, uh, in contrast to that, has historically been a staunch supporter of Israel. Yeah. But the party platform at the moment is not as open a supporter as Biden has been in the past. The current discussions within the caucus would place conditions in with any aid given to Israel on the basis that the party agrees with its actions. The Democratic pl platform rejects what they call annexation and expresses support for a two-state solution and Palestinian rights with or without the Palestinian regard for Israel. We see this reflected in the sentiments of liberal pro-Israel group J Street, for example, uh, who says there's a willingness to talk directly about and stand up for Palestinian rights. Right. On the Republican side, we've covered this, you know, up and down in our interview with Fred Zyman in our episode entitled Israeli Hot in Here, which is, I think, yeah. the best title ever. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. But in brief, the Republicans in the modern era support Israel and recognize that this is the only democracy in a region full of potential threats. And therefore, Israel must be protected at all costs. And as you said, they need to be protected with strength. Yeah. And again, that uh, I think that sort of Republican mantra is peace through strength, which I, I'm totally on board with. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, there are obviously a lot more topics to cover under this subject matter, including our relationship with China and Russia. But again, I think we need to devote an entire episode to those. Yeah. One more thing I want to add on this subject, and, and, and this is sort of addressing directly what this listener was really asking, which is plain and simple. Are we safer as a nation? when Republicans are in control versus Democrats. Now, the word safety, like Jay sort of touched on before, has a lot of nuance to it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's economic safety and security, there's crime to contend with in every state in America, and of mm -hmm. course, there's always threats from, a, from abroad. But I'll leave you with this, and I have a feeling Jay may take issue with this statement, but we'll see. The two greatest national security incidents of my life have been 9-11 and, and, and COVID-19, honestly. Mm -hmm. And both happened under Republican administrations. Both were followed by an extraordinary economic downturn. And at least in the case of 9-11, a Democratic administration was voted in next and presided over an economic recovery and period of relative peace on our shores. Now, if Joe Biden is elected, it will be the second time in my life that a Democratic president inherits an economy or, or inherits an economically and I guess we could say a spiritually gutted nation. And to me, that does say something. Jay? I disagree with you entirely, okay. even though that the presidents in power at the time of these things were Republican. 9-11, and we can do this another time, yeah. I have a, a list of reasons why that happened. And a lot of them have to do with the way that Bill Clinton handled his foreign policy and CIA operations. Bill Clinton had had some isolationist tendencies as well, and and those, those that's a perfect example. Those those problems do tend to fester and yeah. show up here. So yeah. I I don't think you can point to this. Nine Eleven happened under W, and therefore it's W's fault. I think there were a number of things that point that that go back a long ways that were under a number of different administrations, Democrat mm -hmm. and Republican, yep. that you can point to of the reason why 9-11 actually was able to happen in our country. In terms of COVID, 
Now, while I absolutely hold Donald Trump responsible, mm-hmm. George W. Bush did put in place a very robust pandemic response team. So did that, Obama. So did Obama. Mm-hmm. But but Donald Trump, he he got rid of the team. Yeah. He he absolutely he dismantled it. He dismantled yeah. it. And mm-hmm. so again, to point to a Republican administration to just say in general it's a Republican's fault when the Republican was one was the person to first put in the pandemic response team, I don't think it's again, it's all nuance. I don't think it's that, uh, it's it's that clear. I, I agree. And I was sort of goading you a little by, know, by even putting it. by putting that in there. Yeah. But Nevertheless, you could say it's maybe just coincidence. Sure. But if Joe Biden wins, it will be the second time in our life that a Democrat had to pick up the pieces. Yeah. Both economically and, again, like I said, spiritually, I guess you could say. The country was broken after 9-11. The country is broken now. And for whatever reason, people seem to go back to Democrats. Maybe maybe it's just a rhetoric thing. People want to go back to Democrats when they need comfort. In fact, I remember something, John. You're, you're, if your dad's listening to this, he might yeah. not appreciate this. But I remember, you know, during 9-11, we spent a lot of time together, you mm-hmm. and I. We did. I remember one time we were walking down Boylston Street and you were like, I miss Bill Clinton. Like, I really wish he was president right now. Oh, we had and, a surplus. I mean, come right. on. <laughs> and and I, I remember, like, asking you why. And I wasn't really into politics at that point. But you were saying, like, I don't know, there was just something about him. Like, he comforted me. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe that. And I think that's sort of old Crazy Joe's shtick here is like i'm old comfortable joe i mean yeah i mean i was listening to shapiro on my way home from work today and he was talking about i mean it was a completely different subject but he was talking about how obama you know really took the position of of america's father and was a parental role and Mm -hmm. i think you can say the same thing about clinton i completely agree here that both presidents had a parental role in in and over america and it made everyone feel pretty warm and fuzzy and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing when it comes to rhetoric Okay, so that's the end of our segment. We'll leave it at that. What, almost 40 minutes in? All right. <laughs> Here we go. So, uh, Jay, I, yeah. think, uh, I, I think you have a rant for us today, don't you? I, I got a rant. So let's not waste any more time. Hit us with Jay's Rantorific Ride. Come along and ride on a fantastic voyage. So I watched the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. Yes. Like all of the hearings, each and every night, I was up with my wife, Tiffany, until 2, 3 in the morning, watching the Senate committee both beam and lob questions at Amy Coney Barrett. I loved watching the hearings. It was better than watching the NBA finals, and that's coming from a guy that loves basketball. I got to see someone in our constitutional system acting like an adult and have that juxtaposed against all of the children in person and up on the screen facing her. Now, we can get out of the way that the Republicans were extremely nice and courteous, and there were definitely a great many softballs thrown Judge Barrett's way, understandably. However, a good number of Democrats' decisions to use this confirmation hearing as a moment to attack ACB, to speak directly to the American people in an effort to campaign, was, in my opinion, egregious and wrong. Again, as I've said on here many times, I am for the adult in the room. And while I understand that there was hypocrisy created here by Mitch McConnell, and I'm not excusing that, but I would offer that once this train got rolling, there could have been a different approach by the Democrats. What we saw was political theater. Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, Sheldon Whitehouse, Dick Durbin, Chris Coons, and Richard Blumenthal, each in their own disrespectful manner, utilized tactics that I've seen children use who were upset that they weren't getting their way. Barrett handled herself beautifully and brilliantly. As we saw quite clearly, she had no notes in front of her and answered thoughtfully on a myriad of topics. She made it abundantly clear that she would decide each case not in a vacuum, but on a case-by-case basis. She made it abundantly clear that she would not look to adjust the Constitution according to her own policy or personal views. 
She also made it abundantly clear that she wasn't going to take Donald Trump's positions, including when it, came, when it comes to the ACA, as she said during the hearing, quote, I'm not here on a mission to destroy the Affordable Care Act. Despite all of these points that she had to make over and over, the Democrats continued to hit her with the exact same questions. And at the same time, they're complaining about the time these hearings were taking, then took even more time to rail against things the ACB had already addressed. Among the witnesses at the hearings were representatives of the American Bar Association, an organization that rates federal judges. They testified that the group's standing committee on the federal judiciary had found Judge Barrett to be well-qualified, which is, by the way, its highest rating. Additionally, polls taken after the hearings showed that 48% of voters want her confirmed, a number that rose, 21% are undecided, and the remaining percentage did not budge. That is a massive step forward for her, and it's because she did such an incredible job at the hearings. I became a massive fan of hers. She held her own when needed. She was cordial. She was a badass, I thought. And yeah, uh, it's easy to hold your composure when you know you're going to be nominated, and these hearings are just essentially procedural. But she did it well, and she was actually the adult in the room, and I was proud to see that. It's what a justice should be, and it's who Kavanaugh ended up being as well, by the way. Since announcing my support for ACB on Instagram, I've had to defend her. I've had to defend my position. Both things I'm fine with. But I've also had to defend my faith. I've had to defend my character. I've had to defend my belief in science, of all things. I don't think that any of that is fair or okay. I'm obviously politically active. We're sitting here. I obviously speak out, and I'm not afraid to. The fact that this is the thing that pushed people uh, over the edge to address me in an insulting and rude manner is, is disgusting to me. Meanwhile, back in Senate La La Land, Chuck Schumer is still throwing a hissy fit and roadblocking Senate business, derailing the coronavirus bill, trying to get the Senate to adjourn until mid-November by holding a midnight vote to send the body out of session. He simply won't win on this one, and so he needs to tuck his tail between his legs and let the Senate get back to business, as he's literally just delaying the inevitable, and the losers are the American people. I will leave you with a quote from ACB, who I'm proud to say will be nominated to the Supreme Court very shortly. Quote, we knew that our lives would be combed over for any negative detail. We knew our faith would be caricatured. We knew our family would be attacked. So we had to decide whether those difficulties would be worth it. Because what sane person would go through that if there wasn't a benefit on the other side? The benefit, I think, is that I'm committed to the rule of law and the role of the Supreme Court in dispensing equal justice for all. Riz, give me your thoughts. Good rant. Uh, Here's what I'll say. And this is an unpopular opinion for all of my liberal friends out there, but they're going to have to deal with it because, yeah. uh, let me say it, there's nothing wrong with Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, yeah. She is conservative. She is brilliant. She is an originalist. She is pro-life. Get over it. So is half the country. Yeah. And none of those things make her evil. She simply interprets the Constitution differently than I do. Now, I just want to talk for a second about what originalism is because- great. Guys like Dan Rather, you know, the 1,038-year-old reporter, who I usually actually really like, he tweeted out I'd rather change the channel. (laughs) Right. He tweeted out something extremely stupid about ACB the other day that actually made me hit my forehead and shake my head at the same time. Uh, He wrote, quote, if you want to be an originalist in law, maybe you should go all the way, cooking on a hearth leeches for medicine, (laughs) an old mule for transportation, or maybe you can recognize that the world changes. Sorry, Dan, this is a stupid take. Being an originalist jurist doesn't mean that she'll be like taking a horse and buggy to court every day or doesn't, you know, carry a cell phone or liked it better when women couldn't vote. It simply means that she interprets the law as it was written when it was written. It's a judicial philosophy that has no bearing on how one thinks about anything else, okay? This is the first thing. If we want to heal this country, we have to stop demonizing people who have different philosophies on the Constitution than we do. I mean, 
I understand the demonization of certain Trump stuff, but somebody who has a different philosophy on the Constitution than I do, like that doesn't make them a bad or evil person. And, you know, I say this as a progressive. I, unlike Jay, don't want Amy Coney Barrett on the court. I don't want an originalist. I want a jurist who interprets the Constitution as a living breathing document. This is one issue where, correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, but you and me have fundamental disagreements on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Jay, as a conservative, wants a court that interprets the Constitution as it was written. I want one that sees it as a more malleable document. I am for balance on the court. Okay. I would rather a balanced court. I would rather a court arguing each other over the issues, and I'd like to have half and half. Right, and we could still be friends, even though we have basic general look at us go differences on this. Right, yeah, we're so like I'll buy you beer next time I see you if I, I ever see you again. I, I I'm know, seeing seriously. you tomorrow, aren't I? Yeah. yeah, I'll bring some beer. You know, in fact, this whole thing makes perfect sense. Like the root of conservative is conserve, meaning to conserve principles that a country was founded on. The root mm-hmm. of progressive is yeah. progress, meaning moving forward on those founding principles and expounding on them. There are too many on the left, too many of my left-wing friends who, as I've said before on the show, believe these people to be evil. And if there's one thing I'd like to accomplish with this podcast, it's putting an end to that. Donald Trump, bad Seeking to interpret the Constitution as written, not bad. Okay. Amen. That's great. Right. Now, with that said, with there's always a with that said with me. Yeah, we gotta Jay. do this. Yeah. We I always have to throw in the 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 part where I agree and then yeah, throw in a, a with little, that said. Okay. Yeah. With that said, Amy Coney Barrett is not simply a nonpartisan independent judicial nominee. Republicans wanted to sort of pitch a narrative during the confirmation process that we somehow don't know what kind of judge she'll be. Amy Cody Barrett has written all her viewpoints down. She has not been trying to hide the ball. We know what she thinks. She thinks Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. She thinks the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. She said that. She has written it down. Mm -hmm. In that way, what we saw in those hearings wasn't a legitimate fact-finding session on what her viewpoints are. We already know what they are. She said in her opening statement that she hadn't sought out a position on the high court. I'm sorry, this is BS. This is the one lie she told. She has been groomed for this job for the last decades, all right, for the last few decades, okay? She has spent a great deal of her life hobnobbing with people over at the Federalist Society, which is a very conservative law group that advocates for strict, originalist adherence to the Constitution. Mitch McConnell has a list of right-wing Federalist Society robotically conservative judges, and Amy Coney Barrett is one of them. So to pretend like she's just any other judge is nonsense. She's not. But None of that is her fault. She is who she is. And she's a very capable and qualified and actually quite charming person. My problem with the entire confirmation goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we had Clay on the show, when we did our show about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's the process Mm -hmm. by which Amy Cody Barrett ended up in this position, endorsed and enabled by perhaps the most cynical politician ever in history, Mitch McConnell. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what I have a problem with. For sure. And by the way, that's what everyone should have a problem with. Right, but that's exactly. Not, that's not what I saw. And that is my rant. You know, okay, that my problem yeah. is, is that I understand Mitch McConnell right. is a hypocrite. I understand yeah. what happened there. But people are blaming her for his hypocrisy. And I think that's very wrong. 
No, I, I agree with you. And the whole nomination is in bad faith. And I'll tell you, if the shoe were on the other foot, Republicans would be saying the same thing. So my problem, again, is not with Barrett. It's with McConnell and all the other unethical GOP stooges who are acting in extremely bad faith with this whole thing. I don't even want to talk about it anymore because it gets me pissed off. OK, let's move on. You know what, Jay? What's that, Riz? I haven't hit up a, a, a rant in a minute. I'm feeling it coming. I'm feeling it coming. I felt it towards the end of that one. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm feeling See, it coming it, on. I got one for the ages today, and I, I'm going to keep it rather quick. Okay. All right? Riz's mm-hmm. rant, go. Okay. So if you have been following along since we started this podcast venture, you would know that one of my pet peeves in life is the constant, constant, incessant, conservative and Republican droning on and whining on the topic of media bias. I have routinely made this point on this show that it's incredibly silly when you consider the fact that conservatives have their own personal media echo echo chamber called Fox News that pumps out essentially state-run media narratives, when a Republican is in office, of course, and has not just three times the viewership of any so-called mainstream network, but has opinion hosts like Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Sean Hannity, who have higher ratings than all the mainstream hosts combined, okay? And in fact, Conservative internet publications routinely get more clicks, more internet clicks, and have a wider reach than any of the major networks. And it gets a little bit ridiculous to me when you consider how pervasive the notion of media bias has become on the political right. You know, sidebar for a second, when Nirvana came out, what was that, 1992? Yeah. Okay, they were called alternative rock, right? Because uh-huh. the whole idea was that it was an alternative to something to, to the hair rock and mm-hmm. to the glam to ma- rock to that mainstream. was going on, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. then everyone started sounding like Nirvana and everyone was from Seattle. And at a certain point, I even remember saying, I was like 13 years old, like, why is this alternative? What is this an alternative to at this yeah. point? This is mainstream, okay? I think we need to start calling all right wing media mainstream media now because it is mainstream it gets i mean it's ridiculous it is ridiculous but it goes even further than that i have also contested for a long time now much to a lot of my friends disagreement on both the right and the left that the so-called mainstream networks while employing anchors like anderson cooper and don lemon and savannah guthrie who clearly don't like trump actually have lowered the bar for him so much that even they are essentially engaging in their own pro-Trump bias, even if they don't realize it. It's almost subconscious. So unfortunately, up until now, I haven't been able to put all of these feelings of mine onto paper because I didn't really know the right way to say it or the right way to do it. You know, And fortunately for me, a reporter named Jonathan Shate, reporting for the New York Magazine, successfully did it for me last week. So he put out a piece entitled, The News Media Isn't Biased Against Trump, It's Biased For Him. It's basically everything I've been trying to say for years now. The following are a few excerpts that hit the nail square on the head. I'm not going to post a link because you probably won't read it. So rather than me doing that, I'm just going to read it for you, okay? Just a few excerpts, okay? Okay, great. Going into his NBC town hall, President Trump decided for some reason that his thematic message would be his unfair treatment at the hands of the forum in which he was voluntarily participating. Supporters complained that Trump 
had to overcome hostile interrogation while Joe Biden was handed easy softballs. It is true that Trump found many of the questions posed to him difficult to answer and that Biden answered his queries more easily. It is also true that mainstream news coverage in general has depicted Trump in a brutally harsh light. This, of course, omits conservative media, which functions as a state-controlled message machine, which is what I've been saying, right? But it's not the media's fault that Trump continues to incriminate himself and is unable to answer simple questions. The problem is not that the media holds him to a difficult standard. He is held by necessity to a more forgiving standard than any president in modern history. But however low the bar is set, Trump continues to trip over it. This, of course, is the problem with covering Trump. The scale and frequency of his offenses is so far outside the historic norm that it is impossible to measure him by normal standards. The only way to cover his lies and misconduct is to create a different, lower standard. Attempting to cover Trump's violation the same way you'd cover them if they had been committed by Barack Obama or George W. Bush would create a press storm so large that it, it would exceed the limits of time and space the news coverage can consume. Holding him accountable to a normal standard is physically impossible. Joe Biden's town hall featured several detailed policy questions pressing him on ambiguities and contradictions in his public platform. The first, a softball, asked Biden to specify what policies he would have enacted differently than Trump, both retrospectively and going forward. You could ask Trump a question like that. You could ask him that, but he would never come close to answering it with the level of detail Biden provided. When conservatives complain about Trump's coverage, they are decrying not the standards being set, but the outcomes. If their president is unable to clear even the lower bar set before him, it must be lowered further still so that he can hop over it at least occasionally. His inability to grasp basic facts about public policy, avoid obvious lies, or conform to minimal standards of ethical behavior guarantees he will fail even the forgiving standards the media has been forced to adopt. The conservative view is that his failures reflects badly not on Trump, but on the media. Slow clap for Jonathan Shate. Do the slow clap, Jay. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is everything that I've been trying to say. The press knows that Trump can't answer detailed questions, and they go out of their way to lower the bar because when he's asked to give a detailed answer to a question and he flubs it because he doesn't know the answer, he just simply claims media bias. The tactic of this tactic of his has infected the press corps with their own paranoia of being biased. In other words, they have being called bias so much by Trump, his supporters, and his personal media apparatus that they start to buy into it and almost subconsciously lower the bar even further. The cycle continues on and on and on. And even, you know, every single time Trump is unable to answer simple questions with a reasonable amount of expertise and or intelligence, he pulls out his media bias card and the cycle continues. Eventually, it gets to the point where they're basically asking him what he had for breakfast that morning. And then his media enablers say something to the effect of imagine if they asked Obama a question like that, how condescending so they can never, ever win the battle. So here is my final advice to the press. OK, stop giving a 
Your job is to hold people in power accountable. And they're always going to call you a tool of the Democratic Party anyway. So stop caring about it and do your damn jobs. Rant done. All right. That was a great rant, Riz. It was really good. Thank you. Thank so you. I, I, I want to lean into that a little bit because mm-hmm. I think there are two and probably more types of media bias. And I want to make the distinction. You know, okay. the first is the viewership argument that, you know, the more people see left wing media than right wing media. And that argument you've laid bare, um, right. as I've said numerous times. Uh, I do want to add that there are social media echo chambers. Uh, and, it, you know, if I'm if I'm someone seeking out left wing content or I have mostly left leaning friends, that's a majority of content I'm going to see despite the reach of a fox. I'm just going right. to be stuck in that echo chamber. Right. Uh, your point here has a lot of weight. And I think that bias, you have to account for it. And it's interesting to see how the bar has been lowered yeah. by the media. I mean, we say it a lot, like, please, for, for the love of God, do better. And I right. think that's what you're speaking to here. You know, people have to understand this information. They have to understand the numbers. Right. They have to understand who's watching what and therefore, you know, why this narrative exists. Right. It's like, you know, I was in a Facebook argument with your wife just yesterday about this, where she was she was saying something to the effect of, you know, well, what about all the crazy stuff that Biden says? And 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 I'm sort of like, if you don't see a distinction between Biden sometimes stumbling around and using the wrong words or not being able to get his thought out mm-hmm. and the stuff that Trump says and or, or doesn't say or, the, the, you know, the 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 pivots that he does with every question i'm sorry i i really can't help you i th- i think you're trying not to see that distinction it's interesting that you say that because literally the next words out of my mouth yeah. were going to be trump says the most ridiculous things and yeah. so how can you not cover those and how can right. you not cover them negatively and in right. a town hall or an interview how can you not present those to him yeah, it's it's it, the the press is in a, a serious predicament. But uh, you know, again, the last thing I said in that rant, I, I think if I if I was having a roundtable with them, I mm-hmm. would say to them, "You guys have to stop caring yeah. about this this idea that you're biased," because I think it really has infected them. Mm-hmm. I think that that members of the press are constantly saying, "If I ask this in a certain way, they're going to say I'm biased. I'm a liberal." Yeah, just freaking do your job, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 they're not doing that. And you can tell they're not doing that with the quality and the caliber of the questions they ask. I mean, I'd love to see them ask the same questions of Trump that they asked of Biden. Like, I would love to see those town halls, right, back to back, same questions to each candidate. It'd be right. pretty clear yeah. who knows what they're talking about and who mm-hmm. doesn't. Now. Biden says silly things too, but they're mostly gaffes, as you mentioned. The and, gaffes, and yeah. while I I don't think that speaks well of his his ability to be the best president we've ever no. had, it's still yeah. a far cry from some of the ridiculous things that come out of Trump's mouth. Right. The bottom line is, uh, you know, the, to 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 wrap this up, yeah. I I and you obviously simply dislike the media at this moment in history. Yeah. I wish we had real journalists. I wish we had journalistic integrity integrity in this country. Yeah. And if we didn't have this media tying themselves to political parties, we wouldn't be so worried about fact checking all the time. We would trust that these processes would have already happened, and we'd be able to trust our, our media machine that, that, that right. are, is able to hold our candidates accountable for the things that they say. Yeah. I mean, lastly, just if, if you were watching, if, if any of you guys out there watched the two town halls, a lot of people, especially in, in the conservative media, were saying it was tea with Joe Biden and <laughs> a bludgeoning of Donald Trump. Right. And and. As I was flipping channels, I was thinking to myself, like, if you were a casual observer, 
I could see how you would think that. Absolutely. And and to me, that is not indicative of of bias. It's the fact that everything with Trump is so confrontational because he can't answer the simple question and right away presents an attitude that the media is biased. Can I tell you something? It, it was akin to holding up a mirror to each candidate. Right. Yeah, yeah, very good. Very good. That's a perfect way of putting it. Thanks. Anyway, let's move on. Let's. So uh, we are bringing back a segment that we debuted a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're going to keep it very short. This segment is called Cut Me, Mick. So uh, we're going to talk very briefly about the Kamala Harris-Mike Pence debate that happened while we were actually recording our last episode two weeks ago to the day, although it feels like two years ago to the day. The only update we got during our our recording was uh, that there was a fly. There was a fly, right? That's the only news that 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 went out past the debate. The truth of the matter is we probably could have cut out this entire segment because nobody really cares anymore. No. Um, and that's why we're going to keep it short. So, Jay, <laughs> what did you think of the debate? I think we heard exactly what we expected yeah. from each candidate. They took yeah. the party line and this did not move the needle a single iota. We know that from polling now because it's two weeks later. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. mean like two years later. The fly yeah. <laughs> was the most exciting part of this. SNL yeah. was the most exciting part of this. You know, I... I, I think, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute. The only part that comes from this to me is the conversation afterwards. And the only thing people were talking about were, was Kamala Harris, what she was acting it's like. Kamala, by the way. Sorry. Kamala, Kamala Harris. You, it's funny. All Republicans say her name wrong. Democrats, I, I, watch, <laughs> I watch right-wing media. I guess that's the problem. It's true. It's true. It's really funny. Yeah. Kamala. She, yeah. Yeah. But right. go ahead. Continue. I, I think that the world was talking about the world. Our, our country was talking about her facial expressions. They were talking mm-hmm. about what she was doing and saying right. and how she was saying it. And I think that was the only really thing that was the, the biggest thing to come out of this debate was that conversation. Right. Well, you know, I'll say one thing, you know, anyone who has been listening to this show knows I'm a liberal against leftism. I hate identity politics. I yeah. don't subscribe to the idea that every inequality in the world is due to an inequity. And I do not judge people based on their race, sex, sexual orientation or otherwise. Yeah. But with that said, it's always a with that said with me, Jay. Yeah, you're really, you're, you're bringing, <laughs> yeah. the, bringing the with that said. It's true. It's kind of hard for me to not point out the disparity that clearly exists between the way Trump is analyzed versus the way Kamala Harris is, at, is analyzed. Mm-hmm. Because the number one words that, were, that the right-wing media and my conservative friends and associates were using to describe Harris's performance during the debate were smug, arrogant, yeah. and condescending. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sorry. But it takes a lot of balls to call Kamala Harris smug, arrogant, and condescending while Donald Trump is president. And I do find that when women in politics act strong and tough, that is often how they get labeled. It's just like when like when Kanye West acts like the same way that Mick Jagger has acted his entire life. Yeah. Jagger gets called a rock star and Kanye gets called arrogant. Yeah. These are disparities that do indeed exist. You know, you can't deny it. I mean, do you agree? 
I agree, although I do think we addressed something similar to this when she like laughed off that question about Biden on Colbert. Yeah. Her responses to certain things are a little bizarre. The way that she has an odd way of, get of, of dealing with people that are opposing her. Yeah. And, and, and that is what I think people meant. Okay. And that, that's what they were trying to address. And I think that it came off in a very sexist way, but I right. don't think it takes all of the truth away from it. Yeah, no. Okay. So here's the, th- I'm going to hit the left. I'm, I'm hitting the left today with another thing they don't like. I've, yeah. I've done this several times on the show. Kamala Harris is not good at this. She's not. She's just not a very good candidate. And no. um, she's awkward. She has the Hillary Clinton syndrome where when she doesn't like uh, a question or, you know, or she feels cornered, she has that hideous laugh. Yeah. It's a very sort of awkward laugh. Hillary Clinton did the same thing. Uh, if you think she's a good politician, go back and watch some Barack Obama debates because she just doesn't have that comfortability. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about her that just isn't right. And and that's probably why she was, she was one of the first to drop out of yeah. all of those nominees yeah. because she just doesn't connect. It's not a woman thing. It's not a black thing. It's, it, 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 I don't know what it is there's it's a just disconnect. something about I think that's a person. The, there's a disconnect that's the right word to use right it's just not there for her i mean I, again i don't want to pound on the left here because there are a ton of republican politicians who don't have it either there is an it factor like in anything else like in in entertainment i completely i was just about to say that so bringing cultural and a cultural aspect into this you and i yeah. have been in the entertainment industry we understand yep. there are people that are talented right they have yeah technically good voices they're technically good guitar players you know who i'm thinking about right now absolutely i've come across many of them as of you and they just when put out into the public it Mm -hmm. just doesn't work and you're like gosh they were so talented what happened and there's an it factor that it has to it has to be present as as much as in entertainment as in politics that people Uh, have to connect with and i think she really doesn't have that and i think that's what you're speaking to of course, there was an artist that that Jay and I worked with um, when we were, you know, back in our musician days. Yeah, who I think Jay is sort of referring to, and she was a singer, mm-hmm. and she had a beautiful voice. I mean, yeah. she could sing her ass off. I yeah. mean, she just had an incredible technical voice. But when we would listen back, it just something wasn't there. It, was it wasn't yeah. anything technically that she was doing. There was an emotional. Mm-hmm. aspect connection. to it that it's just the only it, way connection. I put it. Yeah. it is it, it, the best way to describe it is it factor and mm-hmm. no one knows what the it is kamala harris does not have the it i'm sorry to tell you so here are the two tech takeaways kamala harris will not be a democratic nominee for president that's my prediction unless she gets better at this which is a possibility yeah. i just don't see it i don't see it ever happening i, I don't honestly think she's going to be the nominee if biden gets elected and god forbid dies in office and she becomes yeah. president i still don't think she would get a nomination to be reelected. Yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think you're, there's something off-putting about her, mm-hmm. and I don't know what it is. Yep. Second takeaway, and I think Jay will agree with me here. If Mike Pence was president right now, yep. he'd win this election walking away. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's just no doubt about it. Yep. And this, this is really the shame of Donald Trump from the Republican Party's standpoint. Oh, I is hate that, thinking about this. It drives it, me, it keeps it me up is, at night. It is all personality with Trump, and it is such a big deal and such a big thing that people will not vote for him because they are just so fatigued by him. What Mike Pence showed at that debate was that he was he was measured, yeah. he was respectful, 
He was t- you know, even Bill Maher, who I, you know, I, I don't like Ma- Mike Pence and neither does Bill Maher. And he 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 said uh, a few days later that like he's like, I don't like Mike Pence. But even watching it for one minute, it's like this is a thousand times better than Trump. Oh, my like, gosh. We could deal with this guy. I say you this know, over and over again Republican. all day long. He's a Republican. Right. He's a politician. He's a career guy. He's been doing this forever. He knows right. what he's doing. He knows what he's mm-hmm. talking about. Please. Could we just have him? Right. Exactly. You know, and now I have a bad taste in my mouth for Mike Pence because of all the the Trump enabling he's done and and the apologizing. Mm -hmm. But if you take that out of the equation, you know, Mike Pence would have done. Now, for all the people, I know we had Paris Denard on the show and he was like, no one could have done what Donald Trump did. Donald Trump basically gave the country from a policy perspective, the three things any Republican would have done. Tax cuts, regulation cuts and 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 judges exactly and Mm -hmm. and there was some foreign policy stuff yeah all of those things could have been accomplished by mike pence in a much more civil manner that wouldn't have torn apart the country and from a strategical standpoint would have allowed the republicans to have another four years yeah i I mean it's not even close it's not even close i couldn't agree more so interesting stuff as far as the actual debate substantively there's really not much to report. Go back and watch it. We're just <laughs> if you want to sleep. <laughs> if you want. Yeah, who really cares at this point? So, you know what? Let's go on to our next segment. Let's let's do a little bit of a fun segment here, Jay. I love a fun segment. Okay, so we're going to bring back a little bit of culture talk here. This is a segment we started a few weeks ago. It's called Culture Corner. The big question about new nerd cereal is Orange flavor. Get hold of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Today, call for the real. New Kool Aid coolers with 20% juice. The Transformers will return after these messages. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video. So. Demi Lovato released a song last week called Commander in Chief. It is a scathing review of how she feels the current president of the United States has performed. Uh, I personally think it's well done. Um, And despite what you, yeah, yeah. Despite what you may think of the actual message in the song, I adore her right to be able to produce a song like this. You know, so it is truly to me what makes America great. Mm -hmm. Before we play a clip of it for you, we should note Jay, and you didn't think of this, I don't think, when we were putting our outline together. We should note that our old buddy Justin Tranter is one of the writers oh, true. of this song. Yeah. Justin is an extremely successful songwriter here in LA. He was also the lead singer in one of the most underrated rock bands of our generation called Semi Precious Weapons. Yeah, a band that I signed along with Prez Hilton to Interscope. And uh, it's unfortunate they toured with Lady Gaga, I think, for two years. And it was just wrong place, wrong time. They didn't connect. Uh, but there you go. good God, were they great. Yes. And if you've never heard of them, I suggest you go to iTunes right now and check out one of my favorite songs of all time, which is also called Semi-Precious Weapons. Anyway, here's what Commander-in-Chief by Demi Lovato sounds like. We'll still take a knee while you're Commander-in-Chief, honestly. If I did the things you do, I couldn't sleep. Commander-in-chief, how does it feel to stand 
You know, he almost couldn't for a second there. I know, seriously. So <laughs> before we get any further, I want to point out that songs against our commander-in-chief are nothing new. Uh, Willie Nelson and Bob Dylan have been doing it for 50 years. But to, uh, to give a few more examples, here's a song called When the President Talks to God by one of our favorite bands, Bright Eyes. And this song, of course, was directed at President George W. Bush. When the president talks to God, I wonder which one plays the better cop. We should find some jobs, the ghetto's broke. No, they're lazy, George, I say we don't. Just give them more liquor stores and dirty coke. That's what God recommends. That's so good. Yeah. He's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, here, uh, that's that's Connor Oberst, by the way, the singer of, uh, of Bright Eyes, which is no longer a band anymore, are they? Uh, they, I believe they just put what a new record out recently. He took a long break from the band okay. and they okay. put something out semi-recently. Yes. Uh, one, of, one, of our, uh, one of our favorites, for yeah. sure. And here is yet another clip of another one of our favorite bands, Pearl Jam, performing a song called Bush Leaguer, which was also directed at George W. Bush. Go. A confidence man, but why so beleaguered? He's not a leader, he's a Texas leaguer. Swinging for the fence. God love you with a strike. Drilling for fear makes the job simple. Born on third, thinks he got a triple. More of a spoken word there from Eddie Vedder. <laughs> exactly. Gotta love Eddie. Okay, and then Jay, there was a couple more you had for us, right? Uh, yeah, I got two more. Uh, okay. I got a song by a gentleman named Joshua James, who's fantastic. Check him out if you can. He wrote a song around the same time, I believe, called Stop This Train, and this is what it sounds like. Now I know the president and the government and the judges of this place. We're still waiting for you to bring our troops home and clean up that mess you made. Smells of blood, money, and oil across the Iraq lane. It seems so easy to blind us. If you're united, we stand. It ain't hard to see that this country ain't free. So, God, if you can hear me, crash this train. All right. Good. good stuff. You know, that was all stuff from our life. Do you have anything that wasn't from our life? I certainly do. I have a Mr. James Taylor, brother to Livingston Taylor, who taught <laughs> at our alma mater, Berkeley. Yeah, so we had to shout out Livingston Taylor because he was one of our teachers at Berkeley. Livingston Taylor looks and sounds almost exactly like James, so but weird. didn't write as good a song, yeah, so he, he ended up definitely, teaching. He, he didn't write this song called Line Em Up, which references the Nixon administration. Here's what that sounds like. I remember Richard Nixon back in 74 And the final scene at the White House door And the staff lined up to say goodbye Tiny tear in your He said, nobody knows me Nobody understands These little people were good to me Oh, I want to shake some hands Somebody line them up Line them all up Line them up Line them all up Won't you to line them up Line them all up Line them up Line them all up At that time my heart 
Now, would you be surprised if I told you that autumn leaves just started falling indoors? <laughs> JT, dude. JT, the original JT, not right. Justin Timberlake. That's right. Yeah. You know something, Jay? What's that? It took me 20 episodes to realize this, but I think I have come to a rather profound conclusion here. I'm listening. You ready? I'm ready. Are you ready for it? Let's go. It's almost as if Hollywood, the music industry, and entertainment people in general don't Get out of town. Oh. Get out of town. Get out of here. Boom. Straight I've out of cracked town. The, it's like the Da Vinci Code. Unbelievable. You yeah, figured I've, it out. I figured it out. I have figured it out. Congratulations. Okay? So all you right-wing whiners out there, get over it. It's been a long time. They have never liked you. Yeah. They have never liked the Republican Party. This is not anything new, is it, Jay? It certainly is not. It's why I needed to be part of a secret organization in order to tell anyone in the entertainment industry i was a republican before this. and it's been like that for a long time there's friends of abe where you know friends of abe was was jay's secret uh hollywood organization that that he's referring to there where there's literally hollywood people who would lose their jobs if they Correct. came out as 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 registered republicans so mm-hmm. they had to have secret clubs where they all talk about constitutional law or whatever smoke cigars and drink <laughs> whiskey yeah. that kind of friends of abe club exists in a lot of different industries yes. that you're not allowed to be conservative in and the entertainment industry is one of them okay so get over it now i have no problem with any of this because one i'm a liberal and i generally dislike republican politicians myself but two as i've said before i love that i live in a country where one can express their dislike for the most powerful man in the world and not be put in jail for it. Yep. Because in a lot of countries, you would be put in jail. Yeah, speaking but out, never mind writing a song. There, there's something that I don't like about it. Mm-hmm. And that is when the echo chamber comes out and declares just how brave this is. Oh, you know, and, yeah. and, and in the wake of, of, of uh, Demi Lovato's uh, commander-in-chief, OMG, she's so brave. Right, from everywhere. It, it takes so much bravery. I mean, Jay, ha, have you ever seen this kind of bravery? Let me tell you something, Riz. <laughs> okay, so Jay has heard me give this spiel before, but I'll do it for you guys. There's there's a Taylor Swift documentary that came out last year oh, yeah. called Miss Americana. And when I first saw the trailer for it, I literally laughed out loud because the statement that the trailer alone makes is so absurd on its face. This is what the trailer sounded like. Just gonna go have fun. No one out there that I know of in the audience actively hates me. Not get dead face. Ready to do this? Ready. Totally ready. Throughout my whole career, label executives would just say, a nice girl doesn't force their opinions on people. A nice girl smiles and waves and says thank you. I became the person everyone wanted me to be. I, I think that Taylor Swift, she is annoying. All of her model friends. She's too going through guys like a train. She's too skinny. Nobody physically saw me for a year. And that was what I thought they wanted. I had to deconstruct an entire belief system. Toss it out and reject it. American glory faded before me. It woke me up from constantly feeling like I was fighting for people's respect. I saw the scoreboard and ran for my life. It was happiness without anyone else's input. It's been a long time coming, but you and me, I want to 
want to do this. I need to be on the right side of history. Taylor Swift broke her silence on politics no, over the week. Her voice in a whole new way. Never find another like me. So basically, Taylor Swift, who is worth some four hundred million dollars, was muzzled. Jay, she had no voice because nice girls keep their opinions to themselves. Okay. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, you yeah, keep yeah, your opinions to yourself. And finally, she had had enough. And she boldly revealed to the entire world that, guess what? She is. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, wait for it. Wait for it. A leftist. Oh, my, oh gosh. my oh God. My so you mean literally every single person you know, from the people at your record label to your managers, to your entourage, to your hair and makeup people, to your band, to your dancers, all agree with you now? So much braverying. Just, it's like it's like storming the beach at Normandy, Jeff. It, it, okay. it, it's basically it's storming the beach at Normandy, followed by Taylor Swift coming out as a Trump hating liberal. Those are like the two most brave events in the history of the world, for sure. Yeah. You if, if you look yeah. up bravery in the encyclopedia, those are the two events you find. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, the point is, we respect these people's uh, right to say this stuff. For sure, we. We even like a lot of their music. We like the songs. I like that Commander in Chief's song. Yeah. I thought it was cute. Catchy tune. And I, I, and I thought uh, the message was great. And of course, Justin Trancer wrote it, which yeah. I like. But um, we don't think it's very brave. It's not brave. And we no. have to stop telling that these people that they're brave and patting them on the back because uh, it's yeah, you're, you're putting uh, this thing out in an echo chamber. It's Why is that <laughs> right, so brave? Exactly. You know you're not brave get, at all. You know people are going to be excited about it. You know they're going to want it. You know they're, they're going to praise you for it. There's nothing brave about that. What would have been brave if is if Taylor Swift would have come out as a gun-toting, cigar-smoking, laissez-faire, loving... Love it. ...conservative. That, that would have been that's, brave. That, yeah, that would have been... That's brave right there <laughs> okay jay so you had a few more things you wanted to talk about in this culture corner segment didn't you yeah while we're highlighting uh culture happening now uh this will come as a surprise to absolutely no one but two of my three culture corner highlights this week were written by aaron sorkin the first is a netflix orig- uh, original film entitled the trial of the chicago seven now firstly no one can write courtroom drama like aaron sorkin Remember A Few Good Men? You can't handle the truth! Yeah, that was him. This film has an incredible cast. Sasha Baron Cohen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Keaton, Frank Langella, Eddie Redmayne, Jeremy Strong, and a host of others. The film is a historical legal drama that follows a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters charged by the Nixon administration with conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intention of inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. It's so incredibly poignant that you can't believe the script was written back in 2007, and by the way, was actually set to be directed by Steven Spielberg. After a number of issues, the movie was finally shot in 2019, with Aaron Sorkin himself directing. The film is about the right to protest. It's about the right to freedom of speech. It's about what can happen when an incompetent man holds an amount of power that they are incapable of comprehending. Thank you, Brian Tellerico, for the quote. And there are scenes in there that look and sound like they could have been shot in 2020, especially the riot scenes and continued usage of the terms radical left. It's a phenomenal, powerful film. And as per usual, Sorkin transforms a piece that takes place pretty much entirely in a courtroom in one place and provides a gripping, tense, and powerful story. There are great many parallels to draw and draw we should, even though this is far from a documentary. I highly recommend watching this film and also 
doing some digging into what really happened. Yeah, I started watching it. I got about 30 minutes in. Yeah. And I looked over to my wife and she was passed out. Dead asleep. Yeah. Uh, right. So, so um, I stopped watching it at that point because I like watching, uh, you know, certain movies with my wife and That's I thought it was sweet. an important one for her. So it we're, 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 uh, we're letting it lie for now, but we're going to come back to it. It gets sure. more exciting. I promise you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, you know, she's not really into politics That's and the buffs, she was I get just it. like, yeah, this, this is boring for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. So next up we have another Aaron Sorkin production. Uh, okay. this time it's something I've been waiting for, for a very long time. It's a new episode of the West wing sort of, it's a special that Sorkin and the cast of the West wing put together with HBO max for a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization on a mission to increase voter turnout. Although the nonpartisan claim was a little funky with Michelle Obama and Bill Clinton as the only political speakers present, uh, but the episode that was performed was an old one, actually, from season three of the original series, except this time it was staged at the Los Angeles downtown theater, The Orpheum, uh, which you and I have both been to. Uh, and as a massive fan of The West Wing, this was just, it was pure joy for me to watch this. The band was back together spouting the quick witty sorkin dialogue i literally didn't want it to ever end but if you aren't a fan of the west wing uh what are you doing with your life go watch it uh but besides <laughs> that i recommend to watch this is for a great cause there are great messages both in the interstitials complete with voter stats we've highlighted on this podcast and in the episode really uh, just go watch the west wing also because yeah. it will complete your life you need to go do you're that. you're you're probably the biggest sorkin fan i know massive i i think he's it's fantastic. funny the, the the jury's out on him for a lot of people I, I have a lot of other friends who can't stand there Aaron Sorkin. So there you go. It's weird. Yeah, it is odd. I mean, yeah. you know, he's he's a brand. I mean, he, yeah. you can't say he doesn't put his fingerprint on his on things. So he if does, you don't like his vibe, you're not going to like any of his stuff. If you love yeah. it, you're going to love all of it. There you go. He's very. It's a lot of dialogue. A, yes, Always a lot it's, of dialogue. It's, it's, it's yeah. a lot of words, which I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, again, yes. you know, especially in politics where there's nuance, I want more words, not less. Okay. Uh, before we get into our topic of the day here, thank you for staying with us again during these long episodes. Five hours. Uh, Yes. <laughs> you might be saying to yourself, why didn't they go into all the crazy that Trump said in this last week or the fact that he started a war with his very highly regarded infectious disease expert or the dueling town halls that took place this week between Biden and Trump? Uh, you know, we did talk about that a little bit, but the truth is we simply don't have time to go into all of it in detail. And since you've probably heard a lot of analysis from the media already, we thought that simply a quick mention of those topics would suffice for this episode. So here you go. Donald Trump said crazy <laughs> Joe Biden was old and doddering, and the polls haven't budged one iota <laughs> since our last episode. So there you have it. One thing, however, that I thought I needed to mention, though, was this. Trump at a rally this week said the following. And your state is doing great. You have a great governor, as you know, and your state is doing great with a pandemic. Pandemic. They're getting tired of the pandemic, aren't they? Getting tired of the pandemic. You turn on CNN, that's all they cover. COVID, COVID, pandemic, COVID, COVID, COVID. You know why they're trying to talk everybody out of voting? People aren't buying it, CNN, you dumb bastards. They're not buying it. That's all they talk about. So this is apparently his closing message. Nobody wants to hear about COVID anymore, and the media are dumb bastards for even reporting on it. Now, I just want to give you a little lesson in math here. This could actually be a new segment, Jay. We could call this Math with Ritz. (laughs) 
So here we go. There are 221,000 Americans who have died of COVID, okay? Let's assume conservatively that the Democrat, the demographics of the dead matches the overall demographics of the country and that 35% of those people who have died are registered Republicans and Trump voters. That would mean roughly 77,350 of those who have died are Trump voters. Now, let's assume that on average, each of those people have four voting age close family members. Some may have less, some may have more. That's 309,400 people. Now we're going to subtract the people who have died from that number because obviously they can't vote. That leaves us with 232,050 people who likely would be voting for Trump and have a close family member that has died of COVID. Jay, do you think it's a good idea to tell those 232,050 people that were sick and tired of talking about COVID? Is that a good message to push out two weeks before an election you're trying to win? No, I know you just mentioned that the polls are where they are, but if it keeps on messaging that, they're going to continue to go down. It's stupid politics, and I don't want Trump to win, but I'm telling, like, doing that is so incredibly insensitive and dumb because if you if you are one of those 232,000 roughly people who have a family member, a close family member who died of this, and you're, watch, and, and you're a Trump voter, and you're watching your president talk about how people are tired of hearing about it, how do you think that makes you feel? No, it's and how, this it's is how why, he lost seniors, and it's it, yeah. he continues to bleed. Uh, demographics of people. And, and I don't know if people are telling him and he's not listening, but this yeah. is exactly the reason why. It's, it's absolutely crazy. So anyway, we hope you enjoyed Math with Riz. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on, Jay. Let's get into our famous topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. So the topic of the day this week is the internet and freedom of speech. I mean, because really, what else is there, right? So by now, you may have heard that there was a rather bombshelly report that was dropped last week by the New York Post regarding Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and emails that were found on his computer. So basically, Hunter Biden, who is Joe's troubled son, he had a bunch of drug problems and marriage problems and sex scandals, not Joe's fault, by the way. Uh, he has been the topic of right-wing media ire for a couple of years now. If you remember the name Burisma, uh, they are a Ukrainian natural gas company. Uh, Hunter, uh, with apparently little to no experience in natural gas, was sitting on the board of Burisma and collecting some $50,000 a month, presumably because his last name is Biden. Now, we went over this some episodes ago. Uh, this happens all the time. Children of powerful people trade on their parents' name in politics. Certainly, the Trump children are no strangers to this, but it is indicative of what people dislike about politics. It is corruption to a certain extent, but that doesn't make it illegal. Not all corruption is legal. In fact, a lot of corruption is perfectly legal. The question was always whether or not Joe Biden was selling access to foreign nations via his son's relationship with these foreign companies, because that's the potential conflict of interest. It's the Hillary Clinton Foundation problem, the Clinton Foundation problem. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and the Clinton Foundation was taking in large sums of money during that time. And the money seemingly dried up as soon as she wasn't Secretary of State anymore. But nobody could ever prove that she was giving preferential governmental treatment 
to foreign actors who were donating to the Clinton Foundation. For as much as the Republicans tried to paint the foundation as this sort of slush fund meant to only enrich the Clintons, which always sound crazy to me because the Clintons are already rich. I mean, why do they need more money? The, the, the foundation has actually been quite effective in helping people all over the world. My hunch was always that as Secretary of State, when she would meet with heads of state all over the world, she would probably ask them if they could make a donation on behalf of, of, of the foundation. And it was probably for non-sinister purposes. But either way, generally speaking, these kind of things don't look good. Let's leave it at that. There was, there, there was also a, a supposedly a prosecutor who was investig- investigating this Ukrainian company, Burisma, for corruption, and Republicans were making a claim that Biden got this prosecutor fired solely to protect his son. But again, that link has never been proven definitively. So the, the, the New York Post reported that Hunter Biden brokered a meeting between one of these Ukrainian Burisma people and Joe Biden directly. That's what one of these emails suggested. So backing up for a second, Hunter Biden supposedly or apparently dropped his Apple computer at a computer repair shop. He then forgot about it. And the repair guy who is legally blind, I have no idea how that works. Called Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) Right. He found all these emails and he turned them over to the FBI. So anyway, Biden has contended that he never knew about Hunter's dealings in Ukraine. If this email were real, that would potentially be a problem for Biden because it would prove that he did know about it. Mm -hmm. But here's where things get really sketchy. As Jay sort of just alluded to, somehow all of these emails were handed off to Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon, not exactly nonpartisan actors, and they they handed it off to the New York Post. So right away, that makes the whole story less credible. A day later, the Washington Post reported that Giuliani was being used as a pawn in a Russian disinformation campaign, even though this hasn't been verified by uh, Trump's director of national intelligence. But now that you know a little bit about the story, here's what set everyone into a tizzy last week, because it wasn't the actual story no, itself. certainly not. Right. So the Biden team put out a statement basically saying that these were false allegations and that Biden's official calendar did not reflect a meeting with any Ukrainian officials. Now, that is, I, I, I wouldn't be down the middle here if I didn't say that that statement is somewhat carefully worded. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of things that politicians engage in don't end up on their official calendar, you know. But either way, what the right wing media went crazy over was not the story itself, but what ended up happening in social media. Rather than me explain the whole thing, I'm going to have Ben Shapiro do it instead. It's very brief because I think it's important to hear the palpable outrage in his delivery over what took place in the wake of this story breaking from the New York Post. Then Jay and I will come back and discuss. Shapiro, go. The real story here is the social media reaction to this. I have never seen anything remotely like this. So Twitter decided that they were going to censor the story. So did Facebook. They both made it impossible to distribute the link. You literally On Twitter, you literally could not link the New York Post story. If you tried to tweet out a link of the New York Post story, a warning would come up. If you did tweet out the New York Post story. They suspended your account. The New York Post main Twitter account was suspended. It was suspended. You couldn't tweet from the New York Post Twitter account because of this story. Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary, had her Twitter account suspended for tweeting out information from the New York Post story. I mean, this is crazy town. This is a mainstream media 
New York Post is a very mainstream publication. It is. Okay, nothing in the story is less well-sourced than a bevy of other stories the mainstream media have run with that are anti-Trump. Does not matter. Both Facebook and Twitter cracked down on it and made it impossible to distribute the story. That's, a, that's an unbelievable breach of whatever Twitter and Facebook were supposed to be. Okay, so I'm going to tell you something, Jay. Yeah. This is perhaps the single most pivotal political topic of our generation. I couldn't agree more. Now, the questions are this. What are social media companies? How were they intended to operate? Mm -hmm. How are they operating? Yeah. And what are the political and social ramifications of it all? Yeah. But above all else, this is very much a First Amendment issue. So before we get into a conversation about this, I think it would be a good time for Jay to give you a little buzz history on some landmark free speech cases that have taken place in the United States. Jay, buzz like a bee. Buzz history. Hello, and welcome to another Buzz History. Today we're going to explore a few of the landmark cases that have leaned on our First Amendment in an expression of our right to the freedom of speech. First up, we have Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969. This was a racially charged case that we actually mentioned back in episode 17, involving Clarence Brandenburg, a leader in the Ku Klux Klan, making a speech at a Klan rally and charged with advocating violence under an Ohio-based criminal statute. The law outlawed advocating crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform, as well as assembling with any society group or assemblage of persons formed to teach or advocate the doctrines of criminal syndicalism. Brandenburg was later convicted, fined $1,000, and sentenced to 1 to 10 years in prison. He appealed the decision, which was affirmed by the Ohio First District Court of Appeal. The case was then dismissed without appeal by the Supreme Court of Ohio. The Supreme Court heard the case and, in a majority opinion, reversed Brandenburg's conviction, holding that government cannot constitutionally punish abstract advocacy of force or law violation. The opinion was a per curiam decision, or issued from the court as an institution, rather than as authored and signed by an individual justice. Now we pivot to California to discuss Cohen v. California for a case that was brought before the court in 1971. In 1968, a 19-year-old Paul Robert Cohen was arrested for wearing a jacket bearing the words F the draft, of course F, you know, being the full expletive, in a corridor of the Los Angeles courthouse. Cohen was appearing as a defense witness in an unrelated hearing and also had removed his jacket upon entering the courtroom. It was an officer who took notice of Cohen's jacket that requested that the judge hold Cohen in contempt, who, by the way, refused to do so. This officer waited until Cohen exited the courtroom and had him arrested for disturbing the peace. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail, convicted of violating Section 415 of the California Penal Code, which prohibited maliciously and willfully disturbing the peace or quiet of any neighborhood or person by tumultuous or offensive conduct. The case worked its way up to the Supreme Court, reversing the appellate court's ruling in a 5-4 decision. The opinion, written by Justice Harlan, reasoned that the expletive while provocative was not directed toward anyone and would not provoke any kind of physical action. The justice recognized that, quote, one man's vulgarity is another's lyric, protecting the emotive and cognitive elements of speech. Next up, we have a case that Riz thought extremely important to highlight, and I most certainly concur. Let's take a ride to Texas v. Johnson in 1989. In 1984, in front of the Dallas City Hall, Gregory Lee Johnson burned an American flag in protest against then-President Reagan's administration policies. Johnson was tried and convicted under a Texas law outlawing flag desecration. This law existed in some form in 48 out of the 50 states at the time. Johnson was sentenced to one year in jail and a $2,000 fine. The case was brought before the Supreme Court, 
and Justice William Brennan wrote for a 5-4 majority in holding that Johnson's act of flag burning was protected under the First Amendment, thus invalidating all 48 state prohibitions. Justice Antonin Scalia famously said in response to his place in the majority, quote, If I were king, I would not allow people to go about burning the American flag. However, we have a First Amendment, which says that the right of free speech shall not be abridged. Burning the flag is a form of expression. Speech doesn't just mean written words or oral words. Burning a flag is a symbol that expresses an idea. Next up, we have RAV v. The City of St. Paul in 1992. This was a case wherein several teenagers burned a crudely fashioned cross on a black family's lawn in St. Paul, Minnesota. One of the teenagers who actually lived across the street from the family, and was of course considered a juvenile at the time, was charged with two counts, one of which was a violation of the St. Paul Bias Motivated Crime Ordinance. This case made its way to the Supreme Court, where Justice Scalia delivered the opinion of the court in a 9-0 vote. The justices held the ordinance invalid on its face, as it prohibits otherwise permitted speech solely on the basis of the subject's free speech addresses. In other words, the First Amendment prevents the government from punishing speech and expressive conduct because it disapproves of the ideas expressed. Now, there are a number of free speech cases that deal with the Internet, and as they are incredibly nuanced, I urge you to do some digging if it interests you. Cases like Reno v. ACLU, where the 1996 Federal Communications Decency Act outlawing indecent communications online was overturned in a unanimous decision declaring the Internet to be a free speech zone, deserving the same First Amendment protections afforded to books, newspapers, and magazines. Ashcroft v. ACLU, where the Supreme Court struck down the Child Online Protection Act as an unconstitutional government attempt to censor free speech on the Internet. And McIntyre v. Ohio Elections Commission, where in a 7-2 decision, the court held that an Ohio statute prohibiting anonymous campaign literature is unconstitutional as it violates the freedom of speech. This protected the decision of the author to remain anonymous, like so many of you on our Discord. The future of this debate about the internet will live in the court system continuously and for some time. I would keep yourselves in the know if you're interested in where this issue is headed. The wonderful truth of our country is that it protects our freedoms of speech, whether actual words, expressions, or otherwise. We don't love the slippery slope argument on this podcast, but in this case it holds terribly true. We cannot exempt unless it endangers the public, and despite how despicable we may believe something to be, it will be protected under our First Amendment. It is a great deal of the reason why our country is so free, as opposed to a place like Germany, where all uses of the swastika, again, despite how despicable I and Riz believe a swastika to be, are banned except for a recent exemption in video games. If I want to live under the First Amendment, I must accept that everyone else in this glorious country must live under those same standards. It is what makes our country great, and it is what makes our country free, and that is Buzz History. Buzz History. Wow, Jay. Really, really great Buzz History. Thank uh, you. I, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. But, you know, hang in there, people, because this is important, and we, gotta, we have some stuff to discuss here. Got to unpack here. Yeah. So... First, we should discuss what the difference is between a platform and a publisher, Mm -hmm. because social media companies like Facebook and Twitter were originally intended to be platforms. A platform is a completely open network, basically, where anyone from around the world can post whatever the hell they want, as long as it's not breaking any laws. Like, you can't post child pornography or incite violence or threaten to kill someone or anything like that. But it was intended to sort of be a haven of free speech, Mm -hmm. as you alluded to you in your buzz history now a publisher on the other hand makes editorial decisions a publisher operates like a newspaper now here's the thing i'm no legal scholar 
But if these social media companies are going to start making editorial decisions on their platforms, they are entering into the realm of being publishers rather than platforms. And two things can be true at once, Jay. True thing number one. These are private companies that can operate in whatever fashion they damn well please. True thing number two, if they are choosing to make editorial decisions, thereby making themselves publishers, they could potentially have some pretty significant legal problems on their hands. A publisher, like the New York Times, for instance, has to get permission for every photo they print. If Facebook is a publisher now, all those cute photos of your puppy that you post could be a legal violation if they didn't get permission to post it. But more than perhaps any other issue I can think of in recent memory, I am very much on the fence about this one. And this is where the discussion will happen, Jay, because I have seen what social media has done to our public discourse and to our sense of truth and objectivity. There's an entire documentary about it on Netflix that I would recommend you watch. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Um, What is that called again? A social dilemma. Social dilemma, right. I have friends, smart friends, college-educated friends, who were sending me links in 2015 telling me that I had to vote for Trump because Hillary Clinton was a murderer. Right. Like, literally a murderer. Yeah. I, and I don't mean just figuratively. I mean that she had killed people or ordered people killed. Mm-hmm. And these people really believe this stuff. So question one that we need to address is, does Facebook and Twitter have a responsibility to fact check information that goes up on their site. Because as I've said a million times now, I am an ardent advocate of no limits on the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But again, it's sort of that head-heart thing, Jay, for me, because I've seen the damage it's caused. So what is your opinion? I mean, it speaks to public good, and it speaks to public danger. And, you know, if you watch this documentary, it's pretty easy to see that these sites are progressing public danger. And this is reversing the ability of America to have civil discourse. Uh, Now, none of that is a legal argument, but I do think that if this is going to, if this is going to progress to the place where people are placing stories on these websites that do put people in in danger and are falsely accusing people uh, Mm -hmm. for doing things that are just outlandish and not true, uh, then I think there could be some precedent here to have some regulation. Okay, but the putting people in jeopardy or or, or inciting violence, that's, that's one thing. Yeah. But as a conservative yourself, what do you think these companies need to do, if anything, about misinformation? The 300-pound the, the guy in his basement who has created a website that looks as legitimate as the Washington Post and is putting up stories that Biden killed a baby one day and those stories are going viral and people it is affecting how Mm -hmm. people vote what is your thought on that it's not killing anyone no one's getting killed Mm -hmm. but it's it's uh it is having impact on elections and politics what do you think i think and we'll i know we'll get into this later i do think that the the foreign angle here is far more dangerous than this man but what i think is is what i thought i saw the social media companies start to do and then they just They just turned around on it. There was the option, I can view this man's tweet, and Mm -hmm. below it, I can view something that was fact-checked. And I would hope that it was fact-checked by a nonpartisan entity, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with presenting opposite viewpoints next to each other. 
I think that's right. fine. I think that's fair. Um, well, I, one it, viewpoint is fact and one's not, though. See, so when you say opposite viewpoints, you're you're almost you're implying that it's just two different ideological viewpoints. When I'm talking about things that are factually inaccurate versus facts, it's everyone's right to post on their platform as they mm-hmm. like whatever they like and if their opinion is completely ridiculous and outlandish once again the furthest i think it could go is a a blurb below it saying this has found in other articles to be untrue or this has been found by a factor to be untrue but i do not think that that person's uh, you know whether it's an opinion or a lie or whatever it is Mm. should be ripped from removed to completely yeah well you know it's funny because facebook was doing this in fact they are doing it if if you're on facebook right now you might see uh, you might have a crazy uncle or something who posted something crazy about COVID. Like it's a conspiracy and yeah. it's not real. And Facebook has now independent fact checkers. They're not part of Facebook. They they've outsourced the 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 issue. And so, if you've noticed on Facebook, it's sort of grayed out, and there's a little explanation. So, rather than removing it, it says like this post is misleading, or it contains false information, or it hasn't been fact checked. You know, so they're doing that. But the problem is, and this is always the problem, because we are in such a, a polarized environment right now. The right wing media is accusing these fact check companies of being leftists Mm -hmm. so it's sort of like you're using you know and this is the problem is that there's there is no objective truth anymore to anyone yeah and i'm not saying that's just a right-wing problem it's right and left Mm -hmm. i mean i i see this meme going around uh, with my left-wing friends uh, of a quote that donald trump supposedly said years ago that uh, if he was uh, running for president, he would run as a Republican because Republicans are stupid. Right. And it turns out that was fact-checked, and he never said of that. Course, I mean, how many times do you see a Donald Trump Twitter that you know, tweet from him that's completely untrue that someone posts. completely he yeah. he's one he's one of these people you know now we couldn't do this segment without me pointing out the following though because if you go to Facebook's top ten uh, that that's actually you. you that's actually a, the name of the account, Facebook's top 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, the top performing link posts in the US, Facebook pages, in the last 24 hours are as follows. Ready? Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, Fox, 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 Dan Bongino, Dan Bongino, Dan Bongino, Dan Bongino, Fox, Donald Trump. Okay? So Fox, whatever. Like I said, they're basically a mainstream network, they, they're state run media. Okay? Dan Bongino, is an out-and-out conspiracy theorist. He's on Fox, but he's on late at night. He's got his own show. He was a birther conspiracy. No, what this shows you is that people like hearing this stuff. Of course they do. People are, are, you know, and- They love a rabbit hole. They love the rabbit hole, and 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 Dan Bongino is one of those who 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 goes down a lot of them, right? I mean, when you're when you're grocery shopping at the store, you see the National Enquirer Mm -hmm. still up there. Yeah. I mean- we haven't pulled those from the shelves, Correct. right? And they're true. full of lies, right? But I just feel there's there's a part of me, again, it's the head-heart thing, because there's a part of me that feels like this has become so dangerous and has has affected the way people think about people in our government, the way people think about, about uh, deadly diseases. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have... People who are posting things on Facebook that this whole COVID thing is a, is a, not Hulk Hogan, 
whole COVID thing is a is a hoax. Yeah, I mean, it's isn't dangerous. that a serious problem? It's incredibly dangerous. It really right. is. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. It's going on left and right. And what I'm saying is, you know, you will hear conservatives complain that the 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 social media companies are biased against them. But again, that is belied by the fact that the top 10 posts, like I just read, are all right-wing. Right-wing does very, very well on social media. And, you know, it's it's sort of hard to deny that. I mean, don't you agree? I do. I think there's far less right-wing publications uh, on yeah. social media. Now, the, the, ones that, on it more. the ones that exist do well. I mean, it's the same as Fox, yeah. right? There's a there's a great right. portion of our country that that is Republican and does lean to the right. And they're the ones who are who are watching Fox and are the ones who are reading things like the Daily Wire. But there yeah. are far more options on the left. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe. But but uh, why does it matter if it's sort of like, you know, when you go to the uh, down the cookie aisle, there are 10 million cookies, but there are only three that are good. So I, I, look, I, those, I right? completely understand. But if you if you added up all of the people who are watching all of the options of left wing media and the people that are watching maybe the two or three options on the right, you may get different numbers. That's my point. Maybe. OK, well, you know, the other thing we need to talk about is disinformation from foreign adversaries infiltrating these social media networks. Now, this is know- the most terrifying thing to me right. on planet Earth. Exactly. And we know this is happening. There have been dozens of intelligent, one came out today. Just today. There yeah. have been mm-hmm. dozens of intelligence reports that it's happening. Russian propaganda gets put up on Facebook, on Twitter, in the way of memes or false stories, etc. And then they go viral and they infect the psyche of the American public. This yeah. is undisputed. And especially, I think a lot of old people, because old people They're not, are- They don't have the guard they, up. They don't have their guard up. It's sort of like, it's like a fishing technique. Yeah. You know, they're able, right, you know, so it's not a right, and I want to say it's not a right-left thing. No. It is happening on all sides. The question is, Jay, should these social media companies be responsible for rooting that stuff out at the very least? Yes. I mean, they are, if they're going to be responsible and they're going to want to be private companies and they're going to own these platforms, then, you know, while I do think that Americans are protected by the freedom of speech and can post what they want, these foreign entities who are trying to purposefully infiltrate our political system is a war. I, I take yeah. that as an act of war, as serious mm-hmm. as someone sending a missile into America, into New York City, into it's, it's Miami. A, it's a disinformation it's, war. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I absolutely think that not only does our government need to do something about it, the companies need to do something about it. It is a big problem. And then as these are American companies, I expect something right. to be done. Yeah, you know, the problem is, and again, I don't want to pick on, on just the right here because I know it happens on the left too. There's uh, there's a lot of people, you'll hear a lot of people, um, sometimes every once in a while when I'm in the mood to uh, to be depressed, I will scroll through a Facebook comments uh, page yeah. on Fox News. Right. On uh, I'll go to Fox News and then look at the comments. That's really rabbit you, holy of you. It is, it is. Um, but people will, you'll hear people say all the time, I voted for Trump uh, on my own accord. Mm-hmm. You know, I did this, I did that. And w- what what I'm worried about is that you actually didn't, that you were manipulated mm-hmm. by not just foreign actors, but by people who are just making up Mm -hmm. and you've been manipulated by that enough to on both sides to think that the other side is evil and we know that that russia is doing this with the far left too they're putting up uh, communist uh, propaganda and socialist propaganda and you know 
here's the thing. If you're a Bernie Sanders leftist and you want to put up on your Facebook account how socialism is the best thing ever, I have no problem with that mm-hmm. because Jay and I, we know that that's not true and that's an ideological thing. Correct. But the question I have and sort of the big dilemma for me is if you're going to put up, you know, a lie about somebody mm-hmm. or, you know, Hillary Clinton murdered so-and-so. And then that's going to go viral and that's going to start affecting the way people feel about politics yeah. today and their vote. That's where I start to get really very scared sure. about it uh, it's because there's no objective truth. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Yeah. It's a big problem. And, and, and truth, the, the real definition of truth has been stolen uh, yeah. because of this problem. And that's right. where my only, my, the, the only thing I can see is at least if there is uh, a, you know, something that can be fact-checked put it up next to it, right? Because we, yeah. it, if you watch this, The Social Dilemma and you watch uh, the documentary about what happens in these echo chambers is that people, the algorithm only shows them things that they like and things that they right. watch and things that they see. So they're only seeing things that they're, they already know that they're into, right? And yeah. a lot of those things yeah. don't show whether that's factual, whether that's an opposite opinion, something else for them to consider. So if you're going to write something that's completely false, to have something that's fact-checked up against it at least gives you the opportunity to do that because in your algorithm, you may not even have the opportunity to see uh, if you're on the right, the left, or the left, the right. Okay, so do you agree with Shapiro's you know, rage over this, over what happened with the Post story? Yes. Do you think that Twitter and Facebook went too far in taking this stuff down and not allowing people to disseminate the information. I don't think the story is the story, right? It's so questionable. Mm-hmm. It's so bonkers. I, anything right. that Giuliani's in is, is questionable right. to me. The right. biggest problem and what I see people railing about the most is the fact that these tweets and, and Facebook posts were taken down. I have a big problem with that. I, the I have tech massive... companies are editing yes. what they don't like. It, it, it is a slippery slope because, you know, again, for all you left-wingers out there who might be thinking, oh, it's finally, they're cracking down on this stuff. No, no. The tables might turn yeah. someday and there might be, the social media companies might be run by conservatives and now all of a sudden they're, they're taking down left-wing stuff they don't like. Once again, you the, know, the same yeah. First Amendment protections that mm-hmm. someone who is completely disagrees with everything I believe in, things that I hate, uh, he gets to live under the same First, first Amendment protections that I do. Right. And that's why yeah. I like that he does, because it means I do too. Right. And you, the very last thing I want to I say here is, you know, we should, we should talk about what the social media companies want themselves, because mm-hmm. guys like Mark Zuckerberg, who I personally call the worst CEO in America, he's pulling his hair out over this as whole he, thing. As he and should I'll, be. As he should be. He never wanted or envisioned that Facebook would be held responsible for changing political fortunes. In he just America. wanted it to be cool. Yeah. He wanted it to be a place where you post your vacation pictures yeah. and, you know, young people would get to hook up with other young people. You know, he he doesn't want and this is why I call him the worst CEO in America. He doesn't want the responsibility of determining what's real and what's fake right. and then getting the inevitable inevitable backlash. But he has created this massive network. Well, he thinks he and could he sit out in the corner. The yeah, he thinks he, he could sit out. He could sit it out and just like, you know, whatever happens happens and he needs to take more responsibility than that. Here's what, and I don't know this for sure. This is just my hypothesis, but here's what I think he wants. Yeah. Because, you know, I see him up on the hill. He's mm-hmm. been dragged in. He, and you could tell he just hates it. He's like, this is not why I wanted to get into this. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and I sort of, I, I guess I can understand it. I mean, he's sitting there thinking, 
I created this network because it was cool. Yeah. And now it's the Democrats are blaming me yeah. for them losing the election. Mm-hmm. They're literally blaming me. And he's sat down with right wing commentators. So he's getting all sorts of blowback with that. He can't and do any, anything th- right. Th- he can't do anything right. But what I think he actually wants is for what I could I can tell you neither you or I want. Government regulation. Which is he wants the government to regulate yeah. Facebook. That's yeah. what he wants because it takes the onus off of him. Yeah. It, 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 it yeah, takes he doesn't all the want responsibility. The responsibility that is so, right. pre- so, so evident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He wants the government to say, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. So he doesn't have to make any of the decisions anymore. At the end of the day, he's a kid. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds easy. You know? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, here's the last thing I want to say, guys, this particular topic is really interesting to me. And if there was one topic for you guys to chime in on so far oh, in yeah. the history of our pod, I really would like, I'm actually legit curious mm-hmm. as to what the general population thinks about this stuff. If you want to do it anonymously, we have our Discord where you could register and make up a name. But some people, I, I, I think, don't like the process of registering. Um, so you could also send us an email. You can send us an email down the middle podcast USA at Gmail. You can yeah. you can message us on any of our socials. There's a trillion ways you can get in touch. Trillion with us. ways, yeah. and, and and you uh, we will if you comment on this story, we will not read your name on air unless you give us permission to. Right. So we'll still keep it anonymous. But I am just legit curious for all you guys, anyone who's listened to this episode, please write in and let us know what you think, where you think the line should be drawn with social media companies, if they should be policing this stuff, if they should be in the business of fact-checking, and if it's a, a free speech issue for you. You know, I have a hunch that people on the left like it right now mm-hmm. because we have been, let's face it, we've been exposed to a lot of right-wing craziness. I mean, there are 200,000 people who are involved in this QAnon movement. You know, QAnon, which we're going to talk about in our conspiracy theory episode, <laughs> which has become a conspiracy in and of itself. It really has. Um, QAnon believes that the Democrats run a satanic Don't even say it out loud, cult, please. right? Oh. That 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 kills babies and molests children. But let me tell you something. Riz. And two hundred thousand people they're, believe in they're it. They're against pedophiles. They're against pedophiles. Yeah, did you hear Trump in that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trump got asked to denounce it. He's like, well, they're very strong about the pedophilia thing. They don't like pet. Nobody likes pedophilia, you jackass, except pedophiles. Yeah. So anyway, chime in. It's I'm, I chime in because yeah. I'm really curious as to what. And I, I what I was to finish my thought. I, I think people on the right are going to say that Facebook is a platform that cannot have any limits because there can't be anyone judging what's true or what's not. These independent fact check sites we cannot trust because they've been proven wrong before. And, you know, that's where we are. This is a pivotal moment because this is only going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very dangerous place to be on all sides. uh, And we'll leave you with that. We'll leave you with some danger this week. Very positive note. Please chime in. So we've put you through a lot again, as usual. Just over two hours. Sorry, everybody. Anything else to add, Jay? Don't. Be crazy, America. Calm down. That's all I have to say. Yes, and we have less than two weeks to the election. We gave you the public service announcement last week, but if you didn't listen, go back and listen to it again, because I'm not saying it again. You're an idiot if you're not voting at this point. Go vote. Yes. Yes. And if you're mad that I just called you an idiot, you could stop listening. You're an idiot if you're not (laughs) voting in this election. Stop listening after two hours and five minutes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
All right, guys, we enjoyed ourselves today. We hope you did too. Uh, we'll let the announcer do the rest, but you guys have a great night. Don't do anything crazy, America. We love you all, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest-growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. 